How's it going, everyone? Thanks for checking out the podcast. This is episode five with Ryan Fowler. And I just want to let everyone know ahead of time that there is two times during this recording where we lost service. And so briefly, you're going to have a pause in the interview, but we pick up right where we left off the best we can. Hope you guys like the episode. If you like the show, please give it a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. And thanks for listening. Ryan, how's it going? Good. How you doing, man? Good. Welcome to the show. Yeah, We're live right now. Cool. That's sweet. I and definitely I, have a lot of faith in you. Logging I promise into this. you, this one will get out because uh, this is episode number five. The last four have all been put out there into the podcast universe, so we shouldn't have a problem this time. And I am sorry that the last two didn't end up um, getting getting uh published so yeah no sweat. been working pretty well so cool but anyway um to get started i wondered i was wondering if you could tell us about your friend uh jesse that died recently you had told me he'd be a good podcast guest um a little while ago and um you've been posting a lot about him so could you give us a a brief rundown about him and what he was into and and what happened. Yeah. So a couple of years ago I was working at safe Harbor recovery center in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And uh, I had this young guy, a little bit younger than me walk in and uh, we're in a real nice outfit. And there was a local rotary meeting in the back and I was just kind of tucked in my office and I met Jesse and he was operating recovery houses in um, like Sanford, Maine. And then I believe um, he'd open up a couple more afterwards. And he was the only house at the time that I could send someone to if they were on like Suboxone or other types of medications. At the time, there was no recovery housing in New Hampshire that would let people go there if uh, they weren't on medication. And that was something I was working on as far as stigma against people with, you know, substance use disorders and people who use medication assisted recovery. And from there, we, we became really close. We both advocated for access to harm reduction services. He in Maine and myself in New Hampshire and uh, got to know one another at the national harm reduction conference in New Orleans in 2018. And we were both in recovery, former injection drug users, recovery advocate turned harm reduction advocate, uh, we both uh, were doing similar things and, um, you know, doing the work that we do, providing services to people that use drugs and who die of death and disease and bear a lot of suffering. Um, he had gotten into an episode of chaotic use um, and he happened to uh, become involved with the police. He was driving under the influence and he um ended up trying to turn himself into treatment at, at a hospital and a, a nurse found him using drugs in the bathroom and the media ran with a somewhat fabricated story that he had like attacked them with a needle and really slandered him and this is somebody who was you know about probably more vi- definitely more visible publicly than i am uh, yep. as far as having an audience 
And um, from there, the slander of him by the media and the harassment by the police as they continue to try to criminalize him for offering services to people that use drugs, uh, for being a person who uses drugs. And uh, he died of an overdose this past Labor Day. And I'd been trying to stay connected with him as much as I could. But, uh, you know, the defamation of, of character by the media and the criminalization by main law enforcement really led to his death. And this is somebody who gave his life uh, protecting people from overdose. And um, so, yeah, that was my long-winded rant on Jesse. So so that's that's why they were saying um, the war on drugs killed him, basically. Yeah, yeah. So in order to try to skirt Maine's harsh laws for strength service programs, which have since been restricted under Governor Janet Mills, but at a, at a time not too long ago, Maine had very strict laws around access to strength services programs or needle exchange programs. And in order to get around uh, drug laws, Jesse started the Church of Safe Injection and uh, became a registered nonprofit church. Um under the belief that, you know, people who use drugs don't deserve to die and people who use drugs are beloved by God with, with big hearts who happen to, to self-medicate and, you know, the teachings of the gospel of Jesus Christ align with helping, you know, the least of those amongst us. And right now that's largely sex workers and injection drug users. So um, that lives on. The Church of Safe Injection lives on. Journey House Recovery Housing lives on. He founded uh, now there's Needlepoint Sanctuary and other programs in Maine uh, providing services to people who use drugs, uh, meeting them where they're at, and empowering them to live a better life. And, um, you know, certainly the legacy of Jesse will, will live on. He was a role model for so many and just a very fierce advocate for, you know, a lot of the things I talk about all the time. <laughs> that is an actual church, though. Yeah, yeah. The Church of Safe Injection. So. Um, yeah, I mean, you can look it up. They're on Facebook. They have, they have websites. They do um, various types of advocacy around, you know, protecting people who use drugs. Now, um, what's something you admire him for or learned from him? Um, Is there anything that pops up in your head? Uh, I would say authenticity. Um, I am oftentimes disingenuine when I'm uh, you know, say advocating for policy change or meeting with elected officials. Um, I offered a training to law enforcement this morning and Jesse was much more principled in how outspoken he was, how genuine he was. And he spoke truth to power in a way that, that really upset people. And it was largely why the main DEA and related uh, people within Maine were, were so harsh on him when he did become involved with the criminal justice system and were, were threatening many years in prison uh, for a young 28-year-old who, um, to be kind of honest, he, um, he definitely you know, had some social privilege. He wasn't really street savvy. He didn't really have that. You know, um, so it's really unfortunate, like the what happens when people become criminalized and face that type of discrimination and you know, torture. I mean, you know, the the role of the police when it comes to custodial policing for using drugs is to take people into captivity and take over their birthright. <laughs> right. And can you back up for a minute? Um, did you say that you did a training for the police in something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, it was a county um, in Maine 
that is part of a course of recovery trainings, a series of, I think, six two-hour recovery trainings. And um, working with a friend of mine, uh, she had asked if I would come and be a part of their two-hour harm reduction and um, helped with the content and delivered it and um, was confronted with, um, you know, I, I brought Jesse up to them. I shared a link to the article on The Manor, The Crucifixion of Jesse Harvey. I brought his advocacy up and, you know, just to highlight progress, um, a lot of what was shared in this training were, you know, the availability of naloxone, which, you know, Jesse fought for very hard at a time when it was very hard to get the overdose, uh, opioid overdose reversal um, medication naloxone. Um, he was going out and giving it to people out of the back of his Honda. And, um, you know, he advocated for access to evidence-based treatments like medication-assisted recovery. And they're talking about, you know, improved access throughout throughout the state of Maine. And I just, like, I had to highlight that you know it wasn't too long ago that these things were you know criminalized and not accepted and um kind of shared the story of jesse um in more of a soft way but i definitely got a little bit of pushback from i really only heard from one participant to be honest you know it was myself and my colleague and um, a couple other people from maine and there was only one guy who spoke up and um, how many police were there so there was um eight participants that weren't facilitators most of them had their videos off but each of those eight i believe were like several people like there was several sheriffs and there was some other um so yeah it's hard to tell like i've done a lot of training in my career on a number of topics related to you know supporting people who use drugs and um infectious disease and whatever i um am talking about and the zoom calls are hard because you can't really read them. Um, so I've slipped up a little bit. I've said some things I maybe shouldn't have, but it also gives me a lot of audacity to say the things I said, because I'm not actually in the room with them, but they're kind of forced to listen to me. And I've been able to, you know, get into, you know, political advocacy, lobbying, um, various other things and saying things to doctors and cops and intimidating people, that I wouldn't say to their face or in a, in a room surrounded by them, but I found a lot of uh, audacity and courage. And I've really been inspired by Jesse, uh, especially since his passing to really be genuine and speak truth to power about these things. Yeah. And uh, like, since you brought up Maine, I, I live in Maine now near Bangor in a town called Herman. And um, it's a lot different up here than New Hampshire. I feel like, um, He's a little bit more laid back in terms of like people partying and like doing drugs. Um, there's definitely like a major drug problem in Bangor. There's always people overdosing and people dying from alcohol withdrawals and stuff. But there's also a lot more people trying to help the people out and um, and giving up their free time. And, and like there's people downtown feeding homeless people all the time. So that's been nice to see. And kind of looking, I kind of look at New Hampshire now like it's, it's more of a state that's like about making money and like just capitalizing off tourism. It feels like compared to Maine, it's it, and it's like a lot more strict. And I don't know. Do you do you feel the same way? Yeah, I mean, the deeper I get into the world of politics, you really realize that New Hampshire is just a domestic tax haven. 
New Hampshire is really rich on paper because there's a lot of millionaires that live here because they don't pay shit for taxes and they kind of run these campaigns for uh, regressive tax reform that basically lowers tax rates for the wealthiest 3%. We don't have a uh, minimum wage. We, um, you know, there's a very diminished social safety net and it really shows with our, our overdose rates, our rates of suicide, our rates of, you know, mental health and substance use disorders, um, all these things that have gotten kind of notable about New Hampshire are, are really outcroppings of, um, you know, inequity and different types of, you know, the class war and racism and inequities. And it's, um, it's interesting, you know, when um, Gielan Maxwell was hanging out in rural New Hampshire, you have a lot of really kind of like super villain type rich people that, called New Hampshire home and uh hmm. yeah so there's a lot of that you know rugged individualism libertarian stuff where you know, they don't want to you know fund social services for those people and um you know you're really seeing the annihilation phase of a specific population um a lot of people dying and they seem to be being concentrated into certain areas and it's uh it's a weird time to be alive, man. Oh, really? But I mean, with New, with New Hampshire in particular, like it's always felt like the other states around are offering more help to people trying to get clean or or go to rehab or detox, and um, it's just really it's too bad it's that way. I mean, but um, yeah, go ahead. I definitely agree. Yeah, I mean, it's we don't have an income tax or a sales tax so we have a very small tax base to fund things like that and so um that's definitely changed though like i will say that like when i went to rehab for the fourth time in in 2014 it was real hard there was no recovery center there was no like hotline with a live person on it it was like google and i had parents in recovery who helped me google shit and i you know was able to to find my way but you know, it's real accessible now. It's just like the quality of it. It's, um, it's really doesn't meet the needs of many people because it's such an, you know, it's about acute care with addiction treatment. You know, they want to treat you in the short term in these advanced stages of a use disorder and then send people back into their environment. And, um, it's not very effective. Yeah. Um, so let's take people back a little bit. You mentioned getting uh, clean and stuff like that. Do you want to just um, give people a quick rundown on, on what happened to you with um, with your drug drug use and, and how you got over it and everything and, and put your life back together? Yeah, for sure. So um, just for anyone that, that hadn't, hasn't heard our previous conversations and stuff so they can get an idea of a little bit more about you. Yeah, for sure. So um, I am a person in recovery from a substance use disorder, and I'm also a person who uses drugs at this point in my life. I practice moderation as a pathway of recovery, but, um, you know, I didn't really have any sort of drug education growing up. I had some mental health conditions I didn't really understand or have language for. I didn't have role models or mentors. I you know, lack supervision for a lot of my formative years. And 
when I was confronted with the idea of trying drugs as a freshman in high school, it um, made a lot of sense because all I knew about drugs is that people did them because they were losers. And, you know, if you did them, you were going to die. But I saw, you know, the cool people and my friends, you know, experimenting with drugs and alcohol. And, you know, I describe, um, you know, trying a number of substances for the first time as, you know, kind of meeting my needs and giving to me what society wasn't giving me or what I wasn't getting at home or what I wasn't getting. Um, and that was a sense of comfort and release for my anxiety and my issues with trauma. Um, you know, I found relief from uh, social anxiety, the ability to connect with people. And, you know, it pretty much discredited anything I was told about drugs. And I turned to the internet and found really great sources of information um, and then met people who, um, you know, gave me access to a lot of drugs. Um, and I tried them all in high school. I was using heroin and cocaine on a regular basis in high school. And I really didn't wow. understand dependence or addiction. Um, and I just kept getting into trouble, but I maintained my grades. Um, you know, graduated in 2008. And um, by the time I was 20, I was a homeless injection drug user. Um, you know, living in a car and driving to, you know, Lawrence and Lowell on a regular basis to, to buy drugs. I, you know, spent about five years in really chaotic, disordered use, uh, really heavy, uh, overdosed three times, whereas, say, by naloxone, I've overdosed other times, um, tried rehab three times, tried meetings, etc. had a lot of in and outs of recovery programs and treatment programs and, um, you know, really just kind of hit this point right around the age of 25 where, um, you know, I had this aha moment actually interacting in a positive experience with Exeter PD, believe it or not, and, you know, was kind of mm -hmm. empowered and encouraged to seek treatment again. And I wasn't disrespected and I wasn't trying, they weren't trying to extort information from me. And I sought treatment again and started, you know, I had a counselor that was competent and explained to me the brain science of addiction and that I had a preventable and treatable condition that can go into remission and learned about the role of dopamine and reinforcing behavior. And, you know, the term substance use disorder was a game changer for me because I, I was largely told I was an addict and I was hopeless unless I found God and I needed to go to cringy meetings forever. And I needed to do these things. And it was very punitive and prescriptive. And um, once I got into the research and science um, of understanding myself, um, I got out of treatment. I got into mental health counseling. I addressed my, my childhood issues and um, had a really solid three and a half years of abstinence-based 12-step recovery, working in addiction recovery treatment. Um, and, um, you know, I, I really owe my life to, to God and the church I found and, and Jesus and 12 steps and the fellowship and men like yourself, who I met going to these meetings, who, you know, gave me uh, the role models I never had and taught me the discipline that I lacked and taught me what it meant to be a man and learned how to cry, learned how to address the underlying emotional stuff that was fueling my self-medication and, um, you know, got to a point in life where I was working and was really into productivity and, you know, reaching my full potential because uh, recovery is largely about reaching your full potential and, you know, living a self-directed life and improving health and wellness. And 
that for me involve taking nootropic compounds, uh, different plants and synthetics that improve brain function. Um, and that started with plant compounds and, and CBD. And what, as I got into CBD, I realized it was like treating an ADD, ADHD situation where uh, taking CBD made me focused and more task oriented and my productivity went up and I got very creative and started to uh, have editorials published and do these really kind of cool things in my career. Um, and then eventually came the day when I was using THC as relief and it benefits me greatly. And over the past couple of years, I've kind of become a, a daily cannabis user. I find that it adds value to my life. Um, there are times actually more recently with the COVID world where my cannabis use has been heavier than I would like it to be. And I've been acknowledging that. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm currently, um, seeing a provider for medications and I'm also now connected to my last therapist um, because primarily I have mental health issues and the drugs were a solution mm. to that and you know once I figured out why I was using and you know figured out you know the benefits to the behavior of taking drugs and what I was treating I found other things to fill that and you know, for me, I had social privilege. I had parents mm -hmm. that could house me and support me. I had access to, to work and all these all these kind of privileges that, that came with being from New Hampshire and having the family that I do. And recovery has been great for me. Uh, I love treatment. I love all of it. I still feel like I'm, I'm peaking in life, even though, you know, I use cannabis and psychedelics on a somewhat regular basis. Um, you know, I'm on a medication right now to help me. Uh, I feel like I'm reaching my full potential. I've never been doing better. Um, I keep it in check. I journal. I talk to people, uh, you know, try to be honest in every area of my life because I, I don't I don't live with the shame that I I have for so long. And, um, you know, life is good. Yeah, you're you're very honest. And um, I think that sets you apart from a, pretty much everyone I've I've met. <clears throat> in recovery um you post about things that um i never see anyone else post about <laughs> and i think that's why i initially reached out to you to uh do a podcast before a couple of years ago and um for anyone that doesn't follow you definitely definitely look this guy up on facebook um but uh what do you think about people who say recovery isn't a disease do you think they're correct or do you do you feel like um they're wrong um you mentioned um you mentioned um a disorder yeah what was it like a, a drug abuse disorder yeah substance use disorder yeah is that similar yeah or, i mean it's, or is it the same thing it's you know continuing to use despite negative consequences the compulsive reusing despite negative consequences and that comes with increased amount of time, you know, thinking about seeking and using drugs and, um, you know, there's diagnostic criteria that we use so that health insurance will pay for it. And, you know, you and I kind of came up in recovery circles that really emphasize that addiction is a disease. Alcoholism is a disease. We emphasize the disease model. And in my opinion, that really is short-sighted. It really 
takes out of the equation any personal responsibility or collective responsibility. You know, uh, it really doesn't look at, you know, social factors, economic factors, issues of discrimination due to racism and classism and, and homophobia and all these issues that oftentimes surround chaotic or dangerous drug use. And we tell people that, that you have a disease and we churn people into this multi-billion dollar treatment system with a, with a 10% success rate. And we tell people that, you know, essentially we tell people they have a disease, but we treat it like a crime. We give people these healthcare options that are largely rooted in hatred for people that use drugs are punitive and based on contingencies and ultimatums. And, you know, as long as we treat drug use like a crime, we're not going to be treating it like a disease or a disorder or a health condition because you can't have it both ways. And it's really about, um, you know, it's, it's about the individual and um, you know, I don't really think of myself as having a disease, you know, it's, I don't know, but that's kind of the language progressive thinking people use or forward thinking people use. Um, But we have a long way to go in our understanding of drugs and drug use in our society, because a lot of what we think we know about drugs is complete bullshit. Yeah. So connecting that um, with mental health, um, do you feel like the United States has like a major mental health issue? And um, I lost what I was saying, but do you feel like that's true? Like um, there's just major mental health issues that are going untreated all over the place. And that's why we have so many problems today. Yeah. I mean, Americans and especially white Americans like lack a real sense of cultural origin and identity. And we have this population of people that's been dislocated in some form or another And they're churned into this capitalistic society based on rugged individualism and, you know, a clear concerted effort to divide people. Um, It really fosters mental health disorders and drug use and self-medicating of all kinds. And uh, largely these behaviors that we want to call maladaptive are oftentimes a normal reaction to abnormal living conditions. Um, You know, we're living in like late stage capitalism. The world is watching the fall of the United States of America, the way that we watch the fall of the Soviet union. Like we are a culture that, you know, is, you know, values productivity and individualism and competition and punishment. We're obsessed with punishment and these, we have these weird obsessions in our culture that are, counterintuitive to who we are as a species you know we are a cooperative collective conscious species the pinnacle of god's creation given paradise on earth with so much you know when we've become parasites and largely it's uh it's heavy stuff yeah yeah i feel like with 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 americans i feel like most of us have it way way easier than we think and um most people in the world would love to have our so-called problems and uh it's just it's it's a really sad world i mean it's it's we live in a great time technology is great and like oh it's probably the safest time to live in the united states ever but i mean there's so many crazy things happening like i the number one show on netflix right now is this documentary on this guy that killed his wife and his two kids 
and he has this huge house. He has everything you could ever want. And he just killed his family, you know, because he, he wanted to sleep with someone else and, and be in a different relationship. And it's just, it, it's so messed up how so many people, they have such good lives and then they just go out and, and they, they just can't be happy no matter what. Is there, is there any way that you practice gratitude or, or, you know, try to stay on a positive mental attitude or anything that works for you? Um, that you haven't mentioned? I don't own a television and I don't, I put very strict boundaries and consciousness into when I do watch things for entertainment. And, you know, my issue with Netflix is it's CIA and it largely promotes really bad ideas. And we really are, you know, television programming people and really manifesting some really awful shit. Like your TV is trying to kill you. Like your TV is not your friend. And like a lot of these ideas that we proliferate, whether it's Joe Exotic or the Kardashians or who our society worships as heroes, it's really backwards. And we have a lot of issues in our society that I feel like are like social engineering, like through you know, more or less advertising and the, you know, the gross uh, manifestations of capitalism that we see and greed. And it's really, uh, it's, it's, it's really, uh, it's hard to overcome. It's everywhere. I mean, I like stuff. I like material. I like comfort. Um, but it really comes to a point where people need to realize that they're worth more than their productivity. And what's the point of working yourself to death if you're not enjoying what it, what it is you're working for. But, um, we're a very interesting, very young, immature country that, um, has a really hectic couple of years ahead of it. Yeah. I mean, uh, I feel like, Someone definitely is trying to kill us. I mean, it's probably the pharmaceutical companies or insurance companies because they seem to all be the ones running the country. And, um, you know, they pay off all the politicians on both sides. And I just, you know, do you feel like they are poisoning the food and there it is connected to trying to get us all on meds and, and just slowly kill us or have us completely on prescriptions all the time you said it slow kills or soft kills you know the goal is to leech as much productivity and monetary gain out of you so that we can continue borrowing money from the federal reserve and acting as a security force for the rest of the world with our military bases like we are we run on debt like our money is just debt notes like we're born into debt uh, to the Federal Reserve, and it's it's really this insidious truth that we worship money and uh, material gain, and you know many people serve money much more than they serve God or serve their serve their families or serve their community, and uh, I really uh, just try to be a good steward of these gifts. Um, well, did you ask a question? I'm kind of just rambling at you. I'm sorry. Mm, I think I might have, but we can move on to another one. Um, So speaking of like the society being completely messed up and like people running it, um, what do you think about like Epstein and this giant pedophile ring that is all over the United States, possibly and all over the world? Do you feel like 
a lot of um, celebrities or leaders are involved and that's why a lot of the stuff going on this year has been so crazy um it's 2020 it's you know the the vision is becoming clear the veil is becoming thin we're seeing our oppressors and our masters and we are deconstructing a system that's built in oppression and you know i'll tell you that like personally i i can't do wikileaks anymore i have read things and proven things to myself about you know, the government and the pedophile rings and et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I like to highlight with the Epstein stuff and the Gielan Maxwell stuff and the more recent busting of a lot of, you know, various child sex rings is that, you know, the good cops go to the FBI and they bust pedophiles. And there's a lot of situations where the FBI butts heads with the CIA and Jeffrey Epstein was a CIA asset who was arranging for influential people to be in a honeypot situation where they're engaged in sex with minors. And then the photos come out and that's how they gain control of Hollywood and various elected officials in various ways. And it's been used throughout the, throughout the country and some very rich people are involved in it and it's and, and it's a quest for power and you know who knows you know i mean it's it's uh i don't really know but i just think that um i mean i i have proven anything i just said and i can i can like prove anything that i've said thus far but it gets into speculation and um a lot of disinformation too, the QAnon stuff and the other, the other stuff. And I, I know like smart people that believe some really stupid shit about like this conspiracy stuff, but um, it's, it's really, um, it's another situation where the, the CIA is, uh, you know, not, and it's, it's, it's a deep state CIA, not like the bureaucratic bullshit. Um, but, and yeah. so, um, yeah, go on. So, Okay, so um, if you could change any law, what would it be? Whether in in uh, in the state you're in or oh, I mean, I'm like, I'm very serious about ending prohibition and the war on drugs, and uh, a bill that I'm hoping gets introduced in New Hampshire would be modeled after a bill Colorado introduced last year, known as um, defelonization. And it would make simple possession of four grams or less of any drug schedule one to four, a misdemeanor up to three times. And it would really be a step towards decriminalization. And so obviously the goal would be incremental steps towards a decriminalized model and then a regulated safe supply. And so, um, do away with the scheduling of drugs because the scheduling apparatus the United States uses is really just a tool of oppression and very subjective and opinion based. And so, uh, re, you know, deschedule everything, right. You know, uh, put, and really it's, uh, it's about transitioning, um, this, you know, when we talk about, you know, ending prohibition, it's about restorative justice and making sure those who are most impacted by these policies have restorative justice and are, um, you know, heard. And it's really about listening to indigenous cultures and looking at how people have used drugs for thousands of years and 
plant-based medicines and respecting plants as gifts from God and, and part of nature. But uh, prohibition has really made drugs something it never should have been. And it took a healthcare issue and gave it to law enforcement. And a hundred some odd years later, the failed attempt at prohibition still goes on. And it involves a lot of death and disease and mass incarceration and oppression. And, and so, yeah, just, you know, decriminalization and regulation of all drugs. And if there is to be drug laws, it should be um, around consent and informed consent and being honest when you're providing, you know, these oftentimes sacred services to people, you know, for much of human history, people that provided drugs to the community were, you know, the high priest in the community or like the most revered and regarded, you know, the shaman or the medicine person. And now we vilify people who share drugs with people. And, um, you know, it's about not punishing people for using and selling drugs. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think, um, I agree with you on a lot of that. I mean, I feel like, um, there will be probably places where people can, can take either psilocybin or, you know, some other similar type of substance and get therapy or, well, actually I think there's already places like that. Um, like John Hopkins, I think they, they help out, um, soldiers with PTSD and stuff, but, um, I've learned so much about this stuff in the past few years, just from the two podcasts I listen to the most, which is the uh, Joe Rogan show and Tim Ferriss show. And, um, you know, I really wasn't setting out to learn anything about this stuff, but it, it is super interesting how people have been using these things for thousands of years. Like the oldest people in civilizations they find have things like mushrooms on them or even weed. And, um, you know, people act like, you know, it's, it's, people shouldn't use it at all. And, um, I don't know. I, I think mushrooms aren't going to be far behind and in, in being legalized in some way after, uh, marijuana. Yeah. I think three cities have decriminalized psychedelics. There's a bunch of clinical trials with the federal government, clinicaltrials.gov, a bunch of university stuff and, I love that stuff because you read academic research. It talks about mystical experiences and feeling connectedness to others and to God. And it's really um, things that, like you said, people have used for thousands of years. And it really is important right now when we look at the climate crisis and possible extinction and zoonotic disease outbreaks related to diminished biodiversity. People need to reconnect to themselves and to each other and to nature and really, that's the importance of psychedelics for culture right now is treating these experiences as a birthright and allowing people to feel connected to themselves and to nature is going to wake us up to the truth that, you know, we're going to go extinct if we don't cut the shit. Right. And I know you post a lot of stuff about Bill W., um, you know, with his his experiments and um can you just explain some of that real quick for people that don't know about Bill Wilson with, um, you know, taking those substances? Yeah, I mean, LSD was legal until I think 1972. And so for a lot of LSD being around, especially when it first came around in 
like the the late 40s and 50s and obviously into the 60s when timothy leary got a hold of it the people that had access to, to lsd were like the great thinkers of the time and you had these these groups of intellectuals that would use this for consciousness expansion and they were using it experimentally to treat very severe institutionalized people with mental health conditions and we're getting, you know, catatonic, chronically schizophrenic people to talk for the first time in many years and have breakthroughs in communications and emotional development. And that included Bill Wilson, the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, being connected with um, Aldous Huxley and another guy, Gerald Hurd, and uh, experimenting with LSD and mescaline a number of times. And much of his life is documented uh, through letters that are on file. He wrote a lot of letters and there's a great library of his writings and, and collections. And um, he used it to, to try to quit smoking and to treat his depression 20 years in, into sobriety. So he had been sober for 20 years. He was depressed, smoking a lot of cigarettes. And he got into experimenting with LSD and mescaline uh, with, with a number of people. And he was going on to retreats in, in California, the way that uh, many people have since. And it was him being exposed to these cultures that really kind of shaped the development of Alcoholics Anonymous. Hey, Ryan. <clears throat> and sorry about that. Uh, we have really bad service up here. Um, that's yeah, never happened before. I, I always record in the same spot, but it said I had zero service. So um, we were getting into... Um, Bill W. and some of his experiments that he was doing. Yes. Yeah, the, the recording's still still good, what we, what we already did. So, we we yeah. So, you know, 20 years into recovery, Bill Wilson gets into experiments with psychedelics and starts to openly talk about this stuff. And Again, at the time, there was no criminalization around it. There was no stigma and disinformation around LSD and some of the you know, hysteria that came with the criminalization and prohibition of it. Um, and really, he was an active member in the development of Alcoholics Anonymous and a lot of his experiences um, in California with some of these spiritual retreats uh, had a really uh, impact on um you know, how spiritual groups come together, how groups of people come together and, and really innovated society. And uh, there's a really great article that came out a couple of years ago that talked about how Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 Steps was like the greatest gift America ever gave the world because, you know, America typically rips off other cultures, but the 12 Steps was one of the, the great things America gave to the world. And um, it, it really um, goes to show that... Um, yeah, I don't know. There's just a lot. There's a lot more to it, and uh, it is possible to be absent in in recovery and return to use without it being problematic. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Um. So why do you think? Why do you think? Um, people don't really mention that much. Why do you think it's it's kind of like a dark secret that Bill W was doing that, and everyone um, says like, do what do as bill does and all this stuff when when he was this very flawed guy what's your opinion on that you know i don't you know i oftentimes am perceived that i'm some sort of like 
evangelists for people going out and and taking street drugs and the truth is that into prohibition it's a very dangerous drug market and you know i would prefer if people didn't have to access something like lsd or mescaline through the illegal market but that's all there is and there's been you know deaths with uh drugs of deception different chemicals being sold as different things and you know, I think that abstinence from all drugs is ideal and it works for some, but um, I don't really think it would serve AA or the members of AA to be telling them that, that taking LSD is a good idea because, you know, the worst thing that, you know, there's many bad things that can come from the illegal drug market. And that's why that clinical research you were talking about is so important in creating a legitimate pathway to the healing that psychedelics offer because, um, you know, like I said, the black market for drugs is really uh, not great. And um, there's a lot of issues with a dangerous supply of all drugs. So um, I think that AA does is or 12 steps across the board. All of them do a great job at what they do and they need to continue and con- continue to grow. But, um, you know, there needs to be other options for moderation and other pathways of recovery, whether that be medication or or what have you, but um, yeah, I think it's great. Uh, saved my life, saved a lot of people's lives that I know. And it's just, for me, it was the, the roots of it. And, you know, Bill W was sober for 20 years before he started to experiment with these, with these compounds. And I really needed that three and a half years of abstinence for my brain to continue to develop and to heal and for me to reach my full potential I had stunted a lot of my, you know, you know, brain development and emotional development by using drugs chaotically for 10 years. And I really needed the abstinence and it allows me to, you know, live a life where I can, I can moderate various things and uh, be accountable to myself and my own, you know, wellness plans and, you know, my own, continue to reach my full potential, whatever that may look like day to day to one day to the next. Now, um, are you familiar with MK Ultra? And if so, what what are your thoughts on it that they were doing stuff like that? Um, MK Ultra was a one of the more highlighted campaigns of the CIA, where they were experimenting with sensory deprivation and different types of drugs for. Um, mind control whether that be individual or you know social control and um it involved some pretty horrific what would be deemed torture uh for people they would give people drugs without their consent and as i said if if there should be drug laws it should be around consent and informed consent and you know people um, something that our, our culture lacks an emphasis on, and that's consent. You know, across the board, we really love punishment, but we really don't talk enough about consent. So there was the CIA giving people for several years different types of, of drugs and seeing what would happen, trying to develop intelligence assets. And uh, it involved Charlie Manson being found in a federal prison and going through some sort of mind control stuff with the CIA and receiving legal in, you know, amnesty so that he could go and do what he was doing. And he was actually checking into CIA operatives who were in 
uh, a free walk-in clinic on the on the Haight-Ashbury in, in San Francisco. And all of this was found through Freedom of Information Act inquiries uh, by a guy I saw in, on, on Joe Rogan. He spent about 20 years investigating Charlie Manson and found all this crazy CIA stuff, including the MKUltra stuff. And uh, the CIA was almost successful in hiding that mk ultra ever happened but it was like one filing cabinet in a basement somewhere that someone found that was left behind from them you know destroying those documents and it's just really in line with a lot of things that have come to light with what the cia has been up to you know, starting with operation paperclip the first cia operation in 1947 the same year as the roswell incident in new mexico Operation Paperclip involved bringing Nazi war criminals to the United States to work with the CIA and, and, and develop basically social control. And what you have from that point forward are eugenicists um, that are really bent on, you know, ethno states and, you know, having a superior race and immortality. And that's really what Epstein was into. Epstein had a ranch where he intended to impregnate 20 women a week. Um, wow. To, to seed society with his superior genes. He wanted his brain and penis to be frozen, similar to Walt Disney, who was also into the shit. And really what, what you see is uh, a vested interest by the billionaire elite to, you know, become immortal and to merge with AI. Uh, words out, we might be going extinct. And, you know, there seems to be a lot of interest in Mars and other types of uh, breakaway civilizations. And, you know, when you get into the Epstein stuff, you really your your ear starts to bleed when you really get into it. Yeah, I didn't hear about that part. Um, do you think he was really uh, he really killed himself, or do you think he's possibly still alive, or or someone killed him? I mean, what's the what's the worst part about Jeffrey Epstein's pedophile mansion? The fact that he's alive and there right now. You know, like oh. this guy had a lot of power, and you 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 really have. Um, there's some dark forces surrounding it. So who knows? But yeah, look up the Zorro Ranch in New Mexico. It was Epstein's like eugenicist ranch. And he was meeting with academics and elites and, and Bill Gates and some of these other people that are, are really interested in some uh, donkey uh, transhumanism is, is a term you hear. And there's some other ideas around, um, you know, gene editing and which is, wildly in the hands of civilians as far as the ability to, to, to edit genes in various ways. Um, yeah, this is a technology is cool. Like you kind of mentioned that we're in this technological or virtual revolution and we continue to evolve so rapidly as a species. And I just hope that daddy Elon. can. Play well. <laughs> so um, what's the woman's name that was found in New Hampshire that's friends with Epstein? Uh, Gielan Maxwell. Now, do you think there's a reason why we haven't seen like a mugshot or like heard any information about her? And same with, uh, is it Derek Chauvin? The guy that, um, that, um, that was involved with the killing. I can't think of the guy's name off the top of my head right now. Oh, the police officer who murdered George Floyd. Yes. George Floyd. Yeah. You know, the thing, I, I think it's weird. Off. Sorry. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I think it's weird that both of them have such high profile arrests this year and no one's seen or heard anything about them. And I was just wondering if you think there's any type of shady things going on in either situation. 
I just hope it's a sign of good policing. Like in many countries, they don't advertise in the news murderers or people that commit atrocities because it, it gives incentive for people to do it. And so we have a very weird media system that's embedded with CIA operatives again that, you know, promote these ideas. And I think that the Gielan Maxwell Epstein stuff is a lot of really good work on behalf of the FBI who knew about this stuff for way too long and their hands were tied because many of them were told he's an intelligence asset back off time and time again, FBI operatives were told that Jeffrey Epstein is an intelligence asset. And, you know, I hope that, you know, it's true that, you know, Gielan being um, in custody is, is why there's been a lot of child sex rings uncovered and there's been a lot of information being revealed. Um, and I don't really know what's going to happen, but generally I think it's good that their mugshots aren't out there and that they're in, you know, wherever it is, talking to whoever it is. Uh, I hope that justice is served for sure. But what I do know about Gielan Maxwell and what she was doing with Epstein uh, she pretty much frequently fre uh, frequented uh, Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort, which is one mile from the Epstein estate in, in Palm Beach. And what Gielan Maxwell would do at Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago Mar resort was recruit young women to uh, give massage to Epstein and his people. And she would groom these underage locker room attendants that worked at, at Mar-a-Lago. And uh, some of the stuff that's come out about um, Prince Andrew and some of these other elites, the story goes back to them getting hired at Mar-a-Lago by Trump, who was very publicly friends with Epstein. He um, had Epstein over many times, um, and he at one point had kicked Epstein out of Mar-a-Lago. Um, many believe that it was over a real estate deal, um, but it's really part of how they are able to put, you know, the figurehead President Donald Trump under the finger of blackmail and, ex and um, extortion and make him do and say whatever the ruling elite want, because it's all part of this blackmail operation. Mm. Now, do you think someone like the Rothschilds could actually be running the world or controlling things behind the scenes? Um, you know... Probably. It's fun to think about, you know, um, because I, I, I kind of I think that the voting is, is rigged and I, I honestly don't think anyone's vote counts the way they want you to think it does. <clears throat> That's just my opinion. And I feel like they are just trying to divide and conquer everyone and, and keep them distracted, you know, with the two parties going back and forth all the time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all social control and it's all to basically create America into this private security force for assets and resources throughout the world. Like no other country has military bases like we do. Those military bases exist to protect assets of the elite, uh, petroleum, gold, drugs, a lot of things that the U.S. military access. And it's you know, it's controlled by the Federal Reserve and, and these super elites that operate in, in amounts of money that the human brain can't fathom. Like, I can't fathom what trillions of dollars are that we owe the Federal Reserve. I can't fathom what it would be like to be Elon or, or knucklehead Bill Gates or 
you know, whoever, you know, they can't really think about increments of less than a thousand dollars. And, you know, for me, I need to spend less time thinking about what I can't control and look at what I can control. And that's, you know, making sure that my neighbor's needs are met, making sure that I do the next right thing and provide services who need it and focus on the little guy. You know, we have a lot of hero worship and we like to like look at these rich people in various ways and we think one day we're going to be like them but we're a lot closer to being homeless than we are to being donald trump for the for the most part most mm. of us and there's a shrinking middle class and a growing poor and unhoused population and it's really you know i can't spend my days thinking about george soros and the rockefellers and all all, all this <laughs> kind of stuff but you know i can go out and meet people where they're at and help them and watch them, you know, improve their health and wellness and become a better part of society. And, you know, that's what it's about for me. It's about, you know, going out and helping the one, the one little guy, like whatever happens, happens, America is collapsing. It sucks. Um, I don't know. Like there's not much I can do about it, you know? Well, let's get back to, to, uh, to you as the topic, but, um, so, I know you have a regular job, but when I think about you, I I think of you as a drug activist. Would that be a good way to describe yourself, in your opinion? Yeah. Um, yeah, an advocate for drug user rights. Yeah, drug activist. Yeah, drug policy reformer. Uh, I don't know. Is that your main focus, like trying to help people out in that way? Yeah, I just think that there's a growing number of people who are, you know, living with needless suffering because given their circumstances, the best, the best that they can do is, you know, use substances that are deemed illegal and by making them illegal makes them unsafe and proliferates addiction and proliferates crime. And they have to operate in this unregulated black market. And it's really about, using my negative lived experience as, you know, a former injection drug user and everything I kind of already talked about to help others and insulate people from structural violence. Hey, I think that was you that time. Oh, weird. I couldn't, I couldn't hear you all of a sudden, but it was still recording. Hmm. Um, let's 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 do a few more questions, then we'll wrap things up. Because uh, cool. I, I have the two recordings already, but um, <clears throat> let's see. So, do you feel like people are getting more help for drug problems today and looked down upon less, or has it really not been changing? Um, I think that there's more awareness because the problem's getting worse. And as long as we treat drug use as a crime, these problems are going to get worse. You know, a lot of people call these issues health issues or a disease, but as long as it's treated like a crime, there's going to be stigma and discrimination. And yes, help is out there for sure. Um, but these systems that help drug users um, aren't always great and they don't always meet the needs of people. And, 
you know, I had a really great time with treatment and recovery. Um, you know, I'm a straight cisgender white male from New Hampshire with enough social privilege that when I found recovery, I could live with my parents for several years. And, uh, you know, when I go to a meeting, everybody looks like me and I identify, you know, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian and it's very easy for me to find people that like look like me and think like me. But it's about, you know, who isn't being served by these systems. And, you know, you see a lot of discrimination throughout these systems and when it gets to the clinical stuff the the treatment stuff it's it's way too punitive and it really reinforces the drug war in a lot of ways and um you know if we define a substance use disorder as continuing to use a substance despite negative consequences why do we offer only negative consequences and negative reinforcement and punishment and ultimatums and contingencies the evidence shows that positive reinforcement works and a strengths-based approach works and honoring a person's individual autonomy and agency and showing them dignity and respect empowers them to improve their health and wellness and find recovery. And the truth is, and what the, what the research is showing is that people are on a natural pathway towards recovery and it usually happens for, for many people kind of naturally between the ages of 25 and 35. Hormones change, priorities change, life fills up, and drug use just doesn't fit in as much. But we really don't talk about that. But most Americans who are in recovery never even went to rehab or clinical services. They just found that organic kind of natural recovery that people are on a pathway for. And so, you know, rather than treating this like an um, – acute care model where we treat these very acute conditions people develop as a result of the structural violence of the war on drugs, we need to be providing health care for drug users and open up doors and be removing barriers to assistance. And, you know, somebody who uses drugs should be able to go to their primary care physician and get a physical and a flu shot the way that most people do without criminalization or being evangelized about treatment. You know, it's about open and honest conversations and educating people. But largely, it's hard for people to be honest with anybody as long as we treat drug use as a crime. You know what? That You just made me think. I think that if you need to get clean or, like, detox from alcohol or some drug, I think you should be able to just walk into a hospital and it should be free. I don't know if that's a possible thing or it sounds crazy, but... I think if your life absolutely is is that shitty that you're you have no other option but to, you know, somehow detox, there should be a place where you can just go even with no insurance and get the help that you need. Man, believe it or not, realistic, believe it or not, in the past year or so, especially with telemedicine for covid. I've seen access to buprenorphine, like medication-assisted recovery, Suboxone, um, through telemedicine. So people can use their cell phone and be seen through a video chat and the same day have a prescription to um, withdrawal management. They can basically, you know, taper or maintain on buprenorphine on their own without ever needing to be seen for an initial face-to-face. And it removes barriers right away. And Believe it or not, a lot of emergency departments have actually opened up for people to come in who are in withdrawal from opioids to be treated with um, largely Suboxone, buprenorphine, and Naloxone. 
And um, there are some hospitals in New Hampshire that if you're withdrawing from alcohol, you can go and be admitted and given medication. Um, you know, it's not as good as it should be because you have cops there, you have security guards there, you have receptionists that don't maybe have a bias against people that use drugs. And, and so people are largely treated at the discretion of the medical provider who can kind of dispensate life and death and decide who gets treatment and who doesn't, who gets the police called, who doesn't, who gets surgery, who doesn't. And it's really, you know, the things that I hear out of healthcare are, are really horrific because, you know, we live under the world of prohibition and it really impacts healthcare in a, in a really negative way. Yeah. Now, um, the last time I talked to you, um, you were into uh, flotation tanks, meditation, yoga, mushrooms, stones, and uh, I think some gardening or some plants and stuff. Are you still doing a lot of those things regularly? Yeah. Was that the recording that got deleted when I was with the real Rick Ross? The real Rick Ross? Yeah. Remember I came down to the studio in Portsmouth and I had oh, my, oh, um, yeah. my uh, fugitive friend there and yeah. Was that that? Yeah. And I was talking about all this. Yeah. I mean, I like, I like stuff, you know, I, I know what I like. Have a lot and, of hobbies and interests, it seems. Yeah. I like, I like plants. I like growing food. I like uh, collecting stones. I like digging stones a lot. For me, it's therapeutic to go hike a mountain with, you know, some, some chisels and sledgehammers and a bucket and break rocks and collect, you know, gems and different minerals and then lug heavy rocks back down the mountain. It's good exercise. It quiets the mind. It's really therapeutic smashing rocks with a sledgehammer. Where would you look? Just, is there certain rocks that you look at and you say that's going to have some gems in there? Yeah, I've gotten to a point doing it over the last however many years that I can do that a bit. But there's a really great book um, called Rock Hounding New England, and it gives you some pretty great maps and information about where to hike, what to look for. And there's a lot of great gem clubs you can join, different you know mineral collecting clubs. And that's really where the hobby took off for me because it gave me access to private land where I could find some good stuff. And then I kind of got the fever and um, I wish I went more. Um, but I really want to go at least once more before it gets too cold. I, you know, out, out where I am, there's, there's a lot of areas of Vermont I haven't explored yet. So, um, yeah, I like rocks. I like plants. So, um, yeah. What was the, now do you think that, um, different stones can give you different energies or, or do different things for you? I know a lot of people think that I don't know too much about it. Yeah. I mean, I would say it's kind of like uh, people have different operating systems. So some people resonate with different stones. Some people don't really have a reaction. Um, I have a reaction to a couple of different stones that I find calming. I keep stones in my pocket. Sometimes I'll kind of rub it. If I, if I'm anxious, kind of like a worry stone situation. Um, people have used quartz for a long time to, you know, hold frequencies and, um, you know, hold the rhythm of watches. And there's been cultures throughout human history that have used various crystals as, you know, timekeepers and all, all sorts of, all sorts of stuff. I mean, do they have, um, what's the term people like to use? Um, metaphysical energy. 
I don't really know what metaphysical energy is or how to describe it, but I feel something, you know, like I've done some, some Reiki stuff and I know how to kind of tune like my energy field and I've done enough yoga and chakra stuff that I can kind of tune in myself. And yeah, I mean, I feel different things from different stones for sure. But, you know, I've also been meditating for a long time and been doing yoga and, you know, very high dim psychedelics that have, you know, saved my life and introduced me to God and introduced me to spirituality. And, you know, maybe I am just a person who has taken acid a few too many times, but <laughs> rocks do it for me. Now, are you still doing the floating regu- regularly? I can't afford it. Like, yeah, I did it. That's why I didn't try it. Yeah, I did it. I, you know, money sucks and it controls the world. It's it. I've talked about it a lot, but you know, I did it like once a month for like six months, and then I did it less and less. And um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I did you feel a lot less anxiety and stuff like that? Did you find it really beneficial or? Yeah. I mean, when I started doing it, I was like very strictly abstinent in my recovery. I barely overdid caffeine. Like I was very like pure in like I was vegan. I was meditating a bunch. And when I did the float tanks, the first time is like an adjustment. The second time I got like some, some colorful stuff, but the third time I did it, you know, once a month that third time that third month i was like hallucinating space and i was like floating with a turtle but i was also in my parents yard like there's a lot to it for sure and i went and i had a couple other what i would call like pseudo psychedelic experience in the sensory deprivation float tanks where you know you're on saline water you're very buoyant you don't feel anything it's 90 something degrees so it's like body temperature if earplugs in and the lights go out so you don't you have no sensory input for the first time since you were born um, or maybe even ever. So you've never felt anything else like that pretty much psychedelics. Um, I've done some pretty cool um, like um, guided, like breathing, like seed meditation stuff where I've used meditation to have some, some pretty fascinating stuff. Um, I've, I was actually able to bear witness to a tarot reading with somebody who I believe is a true healer and someone who works with angels that caused me to see like a face, but I was like very calm, but I, I, I have had psychedelic type mystical experiences completely abstinent for years from any mind or mood altering drug. And um, yeah, I mean, maybe psychedelics were how I tapped into that and now I can tap into it. But um the float tanks were great because if life is really loud and busy and it's hard to find a space in your life to give an hour to meditation, the act of going to a place like that and getting in the pod and turning it all off is, is really beneficial. And it helped me a lot as I was getting into, you know, working more than 40 hours a week and developing my career. It was really a way to say like, I got a solid hour of meditation um, and also it shows that one hour in a float tank is equal to, I forget, it's like four or five hours of sleep. And the New England Patriots actually have these float tanks in Gillette Stadium to make up for lack of sleep. 
Wow. I didn't know that. All right. A couple more questions. Um, What's the last good book that you read? Dude, you know what, like, the sad truth is, and I don't know if I told you this before, that, like, because I read so much off of screens for work and I've just become accustomed to whether it's, you know, podcasts or reading off my phone or computer, I have a really hard time finishing a book or really enjoying reading. Uh, I was, I read at a very young age. I was always advanced reader throughout school. I read as an escape and for fun for much of my life. But since I started working in like the nonprofit world and just constantly emailing and reading, I read a lot of academic research. I do a lot of reading. It's just off of screens Um, I have a stack of books. I'm actually looking at my bookshelf right now that I've like ordered or acquired that I intend to read and I have yet to fully submit to audiobooks. But the last book that I read and enjoyed through was the autobiography of Gucci Mane. Um, (laughs) Gucci Mane is like one of my all time, you know, favorite rappers, uh, really a, a really brilliant guy who is the real deal. And, he, in his last prison bid, he got sober in federal prison and he wrote this book. And, um, you know, I read it over the course of maybe two or three months. And, you know, mo- much of my life, I was like a speed reader. And can I read fast? Yeah. But when I'm trying to unwind from what I do, I want to go hiking. I want to be physical because a lot of my job is sitting on my ass at a computer and reading. So if I'm trying to unwind, I'm more likely to go hike or garden or, or do whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, I could list off my bookshelf. It's pretty sweet. But um, yeah, I, and I, I think that this is a growing problem, too, especially with younger generations and literacy rates and dependence on screen time. It's really uh, scary to think about. Yeah, it's really um, so you mentioned Gucci Man. Do you have a, fi- a top five favorite hip hop albums? You mean like besides like the Will Smith stuff? <laughs> yeah. I mean, Dylon, Dylon, Dylon. No. Um, <laughs> um, so hip hop albums. Yeah, I see you post hip hop tracks once in a while. Yeah, yeah. I primarily listen to hip hop uh, in my day to day life. Um, do you have a favorite like like, like all time stuff like up? if i had to like pick some, pick some yeah, CDs. Like, like probably the album you've listened to more than any other mm, what really comes to mind is mf Grimm's hunt for the gingerbread man um mm. mf Grimm had a couple albums out he's a separate dude i think from mf doom but you know definitely is um it's a really cool concept album that uses a lot of the uh, like metaphors around baked goods and really kind of some heavy gangster shit, but it's like about the gingerbread man. Have you ever heard it? I'm not sure. I've listened to a lot of MF doom. No, it's, um, but, um, it's you, um, you, MF Grimm, not MF doom. Yeah. Yeah. Are you familiar with KMD? It's a group. They were both in together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm way into MF doom for sure. That's some of my favorite shit. Definitely. Yeah. I never really got into MF Grimm as much. I'll have to check. Yeah, out. I'm not really super hype on some of his other stuff, but that album Hunt for the Gingerbread Man, I think is fucking gold and slept on. 
Um, consistently run the jewels has blown my expectations out the water. I've loved LP for a long time, listening to him and like cage and tame one and like that kind of weatherman type stuff that, uh, cage was involved with with LP. And like once LP found killer Mike, like I couldn't believe run the jewels for, are you into that? Yeah, yeah, I think that's one of the best albums of the year, probably. Dude, like, consistently, like, Run the Jewels and then 2, 3, and 4 were, like, way slept on and underrated and the best shit. Like, most new hip-hop sucks. Like, I listen to Lil Xan and 2 Chains and Lil Wayne and, you know, fucking Lil Uzi Vert and all the Lils. Like, I like that shit a lot to drive around to. I drive kind of a fast Honda. I like that stuff, but it's trash. It's it's mind rot. Yeah, It, it really... The, yeah, I don't listen to anyone really with the little names at the beginning. Lil Lil Boosie, now Boosie Badass, he's real as fuck. But really what I emphasize when I work in like substance use prevention is you got to look at the reoccurring narratives that are reinforced. And with contemporary hip-hop, it's I'm sad, I take drugs, now I'm rich. It's, you know, mm-hmm. I'm a sad boy, I take drugs, I party, and now I'm rich beyond your wildest imagination. And it reinforces the fallacy of the American dream and gives people something to think that they'll achieve. And it's really just another way to, way to control people. And, you know, hip hop used to be revolutionary and about, you know, social justice and, you know, a movement of by and for the people. And, um, you know, there is some talented people out there. Like, I don't know. I can't really hate on Lil Wayne, even though he's like evil, like he's good. Two chains. He's good. Yeah. I, have you ever listened to Rex? He's from Lawrence. No. He was just the last guest on this show on episode four. But um, he just put out a really incredible album called Things the Hunger Inside Never Gets Satisfied hmm. is what that stands for. And um, he's a super deep lyricist. And um, he's down with uh, Static Select and Terminology. And he's he's a Massachusetts legend. He tours all over the world and he has uh that's actually his 12th album so i would definitely uh recommend that to anyone i think you'd really like it but um is there any other albums you can think of um besides the mf grim one that maybe you've listened to more than any other one i mean for like a classic like as far as hip hop um yeah the cage and tame one leak brothers waterworld um I was into, like, the rave scene uh, in my, like, teens and early 20s and listened to a lot of, like, drugged out Cage. um, I already said, like, LP and that kind of, like, crazy white boy shit that wasn't Eminem. And then that kind of goes... Yeah, that's like smoking uh, PCP. Yeah, like that album is, like, front to back about PCP, uh, you know, buying, selling, using, etc., um really um right. you know some epic experiences i had to those albums um yeah I, I just thought of one but i lost it um yeah it's uh a lot of uh i don't know I'm like, I'm all right well um let's wrap it thing. up like what? people like What's uh that? my partner the other night was saying that like, Oh, like you're good at everything. Like I'm not a music guy. I can't play music. I don't do art. Like I'm not good at being like this album, this artist. I mean, I've seen more concerts than I could ever 
explain. I've, I've toured around and done a lot of festivals and stuff like that, seen crazy live music, but I'm not an encyclopedia of music. And so I feel like there's 20 albums. I'm going to turn this off and be like, I should have mentioned daughter album. But. <laughs> well, yeah, you can't know about everything for me. Like I have like a photographic memory for, for hip hop for some reason. Mm-hmm. Like I see something about an album and I never forget it pretty much, yeah, but I mean, it um, doesn't really help me out very much. I guess it was just like, for me, it was being in like fifth grade and having like an unedited Eminem CD and being really cool because everyone had the edited Eminem CD and just looking at like the <laughs> lyrics of that shit, which are brilliant. Like, you know, I'm a fucking white kid from New Hampshire who ended up a heinous drug addict. Like Eminem was really formative for me and, and it really, uh, manifested in a lot of interesting ways and it's been really cool to watch him in in recovery and continue to bring music that's much more conscious and and thought-provoking than you know shooting up all the record is spinning and clinically brain dead and all that like wonderful stuff but right you know it's just you know so yeah eminem ruined my life and then um but it's been a soundtrack for me too so yeah yeah all right, well, um, let's wrap up this session, and um, maybe you can come back on in like, uh, you know, four or five, six months, and we can check in on you then. But um, I like to end with this question all the time. You've heard it before: is um, if there's anyone out there having a really rough time and their life absolutely sucks, and they're looking for some hope, what advice would you give to them? Um, I guess it's. Um... You know, if someone's feeling hopeless or helpless, then it sounds like they're pretty motivated for change. And sometimes it's about keeping in mind what motivates you for change and finding your drive within you and then thinking about what you want your life to look like and figuring out, you know, what a vision for your life is. You know, we all get somewhere, but not everyone gets there on purpose. So it's about having a vision for your life and a direction towards that and figuring out how to build a life that evolves into what you want to manifest. And as long as you have that drive and your motivation, your vision for what you want, and you think it, you speak it, you write it, you manifest it, you're the master of your own destiny, and you can do whatever it is you want. With God, all things are possible. With community, all things are possible. And, you know, we are the peak of human evolution. So if you can think it, you can do it. It's just a matter of finding what motivates you and having a vision for what it is you want. And then breaking that down into small goals, you know, short-term goals to long-term goals and seek guidance from others, seek supervision, identify your mentors and role models and think about, you know, who it is that influences your decisions and surround yourself with winners because failure is contagious. And we become the people we, we become yeah. the people we spend the most time with. And so if you surround yourself with winners, you're going to naturally be winning and developing ex, you know, habits of excellence. And that's when you can start to consistently improve your life by 1% wherever you can and however you can find ways where you can improve just by 1%. You know, set yourself very short-term goals. And when you start to constantly innovate and improve by 1%, you'll experience exponential growth and you'll reach your full potential. And because human potential is limitless. So don't, don't cut yourself short, short. Don't let society hold you down um, because you really want to reach your full potential because this is the launch pad to the next life. And the next life is really beautiful and much less restrictive than this one. 
but you really want to reach your peak and your full potential. And that's within you connect to God, connect to your, your community and uh, do this thing. Cause we really got to save the planet. It's not looking good. <laughs> yeah. That's a really great answer. Thank you for that. And um, thanks again for, for joining us on the show. And uh, it's always good talking to you. You're always a wealth of knowledge and uh, keep doing what you're doing. It, it, you're doing a lot of good work and uh, it's, it doesn't go unnoticed. So I really appreciate the stuff that you do and, and who you are and, and how you help out so many people. So thanks again. And um, do you have any, anything you, you want to say? No, thanks for having me. Uh, Hopefully this recording makes it to other people's ears. This will be, this will be a good one. I got a good feeling about it. Um, So yeah, thank you for having me and, you know, thank you for, you know, your help and friendship throughout the years. Um, It sucks. We're not, you know, across the table from one another, but uh, hopefully I'll get to see you face to face soon. Yeah. So yeah, you have we'll a uh, open invite out to my compound and I'll let you know if I'm ever in Bangor. Yeah. All right, man. Well, have a good night. I'll talk to you soon. All right. All right. Bye. You too. Bye. The, 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 the Craig Crozier Podcast. Podcast.